Oh my god! Yeah, Hunter was too busy chasing. Was it cats inside your house? What what went in? Your oh house? yeah, <laughs> that was horrible. Yeah, I mean, I know we're here to talk about nutrition and whatever else. But that, that's a crazy story. I'll, I'll just very quickly. We live out in the woods, and this wild cat got into our house, and my wife pretended like she had no idea how it got in there. And I said, "I know how it got in our house. You left the doors open. You do it all the time." And so anyways, I get home from grocery shopping, cat's upstairs. I try and get in this cat. I mean, it's insane. It is an insane cat. And it is trying to kill me. It's trying to kill her. Long story short, I chase it out of the house, but it doesn't go through the doors that are open. It jumps through one of our windows and just like shatters the whole thing. I don't know how it didn't kill itself. Oh, Oh, yeah. It, all the doors were open. It chose not the door that's open. It chose our closed window and just right through it. So, that's oh, insane. Yeah. Dude, I was see yeah. on the socials because st- those little nuggets were like just enough to get me by. I know. They were legit. Hello and welcome back to the Health Unfiltered podcast. My name is Ro and I'm joined with my two best friends, Brooke and Nicole. Go and say hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. And <laughs> wow. So hello. Uh, that, that little chuckle you heard in the back was our guest. This is Dr. Hunter Waldman. He's a handsome fellow. Go ahead and say hello, Hunter. Hey, guys. So you can tell by his voice, he's just filled with enthusiasm to be here. Just <laughs> sweet. Awesome. I'm going to need you to bring the energy a little more. Yeah, I'm uh, ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Waldman or Hunter, as I know him, or, you know, lover boys, I know him even more personally, um, is an assistant professor at the University of North Alabama. Uh, he's a former collegiate football player and former sweat consultant with the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. Uh, He received his bachelor's and master's at UNA in exercise science and received his PhD in exercise science with a research emphasis in nutrition from Mississippi State University. So hail state and go dogs. Um, Hunter's, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, Hunter's main research is focused at mitigating cardiometabolic diseases in high stress occupations through nutrition interventions, uh, but he has also conducted several recent studies examining various supplements uh, like lion's mane, mushroom, caffeine, uh, what is it, astaxanthin? Is that how you pronounce it? Astaxanthin, yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm so smart. Uh, And all those things on health performance and metabolic differences in females, Um, because I think we've talked about ad nauseum how there's like no research on females so i think that's really great um but yeah that's that's the uh introduction that was given to us why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit more you little nerd yeah man well first off, i appreciate you guys having me um kind of as roe pointed out i'm a professor at the university of north alabama and currently um a researcher as well my main research area isn't reducing cardiometabolic diseases, but I'm pretty open. I would say that I don't really have any beliefs that I just have interest. It's very interesting that when I was going into my doctorate, I had all these beliefs from very little research I had done up until that point. 
And during my PhD, I was humbled by the individuals over me. Uh, Matt McAllister is the main one, but also John Eric Smith and uh, Dr. Fountain as well. And learned that I was very biased in <laughs> what I thought was right or appropriate, especially in terms of nutrition. I was definitely that guy that was like, everybody should be on a ketogenic diet and <laughs> there's no room for anything else. And so coming out of my PhD, uh, most of those biases were gone and we could talk a little bit about maybe what I still maybe stick to. Uh, but yeah, right now I'm trying to move into female research quite a bit simply because there is so little done out there and I'm just really amazed at the differences in female physiology and male physiology. And there are quite a bit of differences and people state that, well, that's a reason why we don't do that type of research, but that's not, that shouldn't be appropriate. That's not a, that's not a good reason to not do yeah. research, but um, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of where I'm headed right now. I've got a couple projects going on this spring uh, where we're looking, we've got uh, a study used looking at betaine and females. We've got a caffeine study in females looking at the placebo effect, which I'm pretty pumped about. So, and then in the summer, got a couple of Alliance main study, astaxanthin study, so, yeah, we can definitely dive into all those uh, as you guys want. Very cool. Yeah, I, I kind of wish you were still that that super biased guy, just so we could be like, just arguing for the next you know hour, hour and a half. But <laughs> uh, we could definitely. Man, I'm more than happy to talk about where my mind was going like, into that, and I could have argued with the best of them. In fact, one of my old, one of my very first published articles, it was. Um, I don't remember the exact title, but it was something along like a shift, uh, a shift towards a high fat diet in the current metabolic paradigm, like a new perspective. And it was it was essentially making an argument that, you know, we've we're over consuming carbohydrates in the form of processed carbohydrates and fat lipids aren't really uh, metabolically handled how people think they are. A lot of people think, well, if I eat fat, I'll get fat and. Right. Uh, we should keep fat less than 10% of the diet. And it's mm, no, not really, because I mean, we start looking at the research that's out there and um, it, it, there's a lot of, it depends. Uh, that's the right. best way to put it. So, but as we move through, you know, as I, again, move through my career, I realize it is not black and white, how I used to think it was again, the ketogenic is for everyone. So in fact, I'm probably, I push most people away from it now. I'm like, no, you probably should not do that. So, yeah. Yeah, no, we'll definitely get in, get into that because it's part of like your, I guess, your journey to academia and, and your research and stuff like that. Um, and I think we all have our own biases, right? Uh, oh, for but, sure. You know, mine are just right and yours, yours are wrong. Yeah, mine are all wrong. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Classic, bro. Classic, yeah. classic. What are we going to do about it? So uh, let's go ahead and talk about what we are drinking today and virtual cheersing. Brooke, if you want to start us off, that'd be great. <laughs> smoothie. I <laughs> yeah. have the giant Yeti mug that's bigger than my entire head. Kong smoothie is what I'm calling it. <laughs> I'm actually just drinking a protein smoothie tonight because I just got done working out and I needed to refuel before drinking alcohol if I choose to do so later, which I probably won't. Um, so I'm having like uh, fresh strawberries, peanut butter, chocolate, protein powder, and some coconut milk, and it's delicious. That does sound Show really off. good. Nice. You put ice in there? <laughs> like, Did I what, Ro? You put ice in there? No, I don't really like it to be too cold, especially in the winter. I don't want like a brain freeze and I'm already cold. 
I guess that's yeah, fair. Ro. <laughs> yeah, dumb, dumb question. <laughs> Not a good question. <laughs> See, yeah, this is what I had to deal with with the the two years I was at Mississippi State. He was just like, "Hey, you're dumb." Like, oh, thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> that's why he hated his life so much. Yeah, yeah, all because of Hunter. Yeah, nobody else. <laughs> what about you, Nicole? What are you drinking tonight? I am finishing off a bottle of red wine that I opened a couple of days ago. So, you know, moderation, people. <laughs> um, but yeah, just just red wine. Nice. And Lots then what about you, Hunter? I've got a uh, ginger berry kombucha. Uh, Rose shot me a text before this. was like, hey, dude, if you're... You're still sober. Uh, you can drink water or a kombucha. I was like, great, because I've got a kombucha. So that's what I'm gonna be drinking. love it. I just want to make sure you weren't like, uh, I just, I, I've never listened to an episode. I didn't know we had to drink anything. And I'd be like, God, oh, yeah. Okay. No, I'm, I'm, I'm caught up. Okay, good. It's his favorite podcast, is what he said off air. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, for me, I have, it's called Two Below. Um, so I went to Colorado this past weekend and I got like a, I didn't go just for the beer, but I got a like variety pack, which was pretty good. And I think this one was my favorite one. Um, so it's funny you mentioned that you did proper uh, post-nutrition and pre-nutrition for your workout, Brooke, because I learned how to snowboard uh, two days ago. And I had maybe two cups of water the entire day and then just had like pizza at the end of the night. And I'm hurting today, like still from, and I think, I think mm -hmm. it could have been mitigated from, um, from doing things a little better, but, uh, I was just so excited and I was like, I don't want to unstrap. I don't need to drink water. So, um, but yeah, this beer is, is also what I drank a lot of. So I'm excited to drink it in my home here. So it looks like a fun trip too. It was great. It was great to get away and pretend I was the ice queen elsa herself so um <laughs> you know <laughs> chase your dreams people <laughs> that's all i want to be is a disney princess um but cool i do believe we have a question of the week um and this comes from at uh denise smith haynes oh wow okay denise smith haynes uh what are some good ways to hydrate in the cold winter months wow how relevant uh, i don't crave cold water or ice water in the winter so my favorite is to do warm lemon water and sometimes I'll even add a little bit of honey, but another good way, if you don't feel like drinking cold water is just doing straight room temperature. Um, I honestly do that all year round. I just prefer it, but also like get some good decaf teas. If you find it hard to keep wanting to hydrate, it's feels so good to have a warm mug in your hand. And I think it's just nice to switch it up and not have plain water. That's very fair. Hmm. I, 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 yeah, or does, just drink does, like a lot of hot tea. Yeah. Water. Lemon water for me always like makes my like throat dry. I always feel like it's, I, I don't know. I just, it never is good. I don't know. I just don't like what it. What does that mean? I, well, Your throat? So, like, I've never heard that. Well, That's, so. That, I don't know about that, bro. Well, all right. So this is this is me <laughs> exposing the fact that I used to be talented. Uh, when I when I did sing, it's like if okay. we had anything lemon that related, it would just like mess up our throats and like we just mm -hmm. couldn't sing. So like, 
when we went to restaurants or whatever and they put a lemon in your water, I was like, I have to be that person and be like, ah, can I get this without water? My voice. I have to save my voice. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, and now I have a career in podcasting because this is super successful. So, you know, it all comes full circle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't you know. You're always I, meant to use your voice, Ro. Yeah. <laughs> exactly so i don't know lemon water for me is just different but tea i'm a big fan of of tea as well um well why why would you i, I guess because one thing i i did drink while i was over there was like powerade and it was really because they were out of water um when would you advise to drink like powerade because it is a liquid and you can like technically get water from it what are your thoughts on on that are you talking to me yeah, anyone, yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, it's definitely hydrating. It's still a liquid. Um, I just think that a lot of times people have a tendency to overdrink those sports drinks that have a lot of sugar and carbohydrate in them that they don't necessarily need. So I would just be careful. If you're if you're really active, it's, it's definitely a great way to hydrate, but I would just be careful if that's your go-to source of hydration. I would reach for water first. Mm -hmm. Very cool. But if you're really yeah. active, you know, if you're super active or some, I mean, super active, I go mean, for it. I'm sure you needed it row that day. Yeah, there's a lot of different um, of those like electrolyte waters nowadays that where a lot of them don't have as much sugar or carbohydrate. So you really just kind of got to find the right one that is going to hydrate you, but also not be a shit ton of calories and <laughs> just sugar give you diabetes. Yeah, you <laughs> that's super fair. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like I like Pedialyte. I love the taste of Pedialyte, but I don't just like bomb those. That would be that'd be messed up. Um, it just reminds but, me of being drunk when I drink Pedialyte. Oh yeah, I know exactly. Exactly. Like, Does anyone so, want my hangover remedy recipe? Easy. Yeah, I mean, yes. yeah. What is it? That's, what is it? I do half Pedialyte, half water, and then half vodka. That's it. <laughs> No, yeah, a little hair of the dog just to get you back. Yeah, exactly. no, I just I like I gotta cut the Pedialyte because it's like a little too much, so I, I cut it. If it's good for babies, it's good for me. You know, just like uh, how breast milk helps you with hypertrophy. Just kidding, that's a bad that, that's a bad one. I'm like, did you what? get that from a Netflix documentary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I knew about that way before then. Like, but where are you getting your breast milk from? <laughs> uh, Craigslist. I just type in booby milk, and you would not believe. <laughs> The hits that I get, it's really good. Uh, Hunter's like, sweet, I can't share this to anyone in my academic <laughs> profession. Yeah, I'm gonna share it with all my students, and we just went off the rail. And... <laughs> you're like, you're like, uh, skip to the tenth minute, please. <laughs> just... All right, so let's get into this. Um, you know, we we just talked about how uh, over drinking things like Powerade and Gatorade, like can't you know all those extra carbs like unnecessary and i think it's fitting because you know hunter has talked about how most of his stuff has to do with carb restricted feeding as far as the research that he's done in the past but i really want to take a couple steps back um since i met hunter he's been like one of the most passionate people uh, i've ever met uh i think you're also very intense so when people don't know you, they're like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to talk to him or mess with him. Uh, but like, you know, when, once you get to, to know you, it's like, oh, he's just like very passionate about the things you like to talk about in science and teaching. Um, and that's obviously led you to where you are now. But if you could just give us like a rundown of how exactly you got into science and then what drove you to academia, because 
you did state that you have worked with Gatorade and done a bunch of other things in the private sector. Um, so what made you pick being a professor? Yeah, great question. Um, you guys feel free to stop me at any point. Uh, to kind of take a big step back, I was, I walked on uh, at college football as a linebacker and I graduated high school, 200 pounds, didn't know anything about nutrition, was a history major. And the football coach, Terry Bowden at the time said, hey, in order to play, we need to get you from 200 to 250, 50 pounds. And I said, okay, well, how do I do that? And he said, well, you need, it's all about calories in versus calories out. So we need to get you more calories. And a lot of people have heard this story and I said, okay, well, what do you suggest? He said, every night before you go to bed. Now, if you've ever seen Terry Bowden, you know, he's not the pinnacle of health. He's, he's very overweight. That's kind of a running joke, especially in the football community. But he said, every night before you go to bed, uh, you should consume uh, and tie. And this was my strength coach talking. This was, this was several coaches telling me this, that I should consume a whole pizza before I go to bed <laughs> and that uh, during the day I should consume an entire gallon of chocolate milk and eat McDoubles whenever I could. Excuse me, and what? So did, That's Gomad <laughs> Extreme, is what that is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, and on top of that, I was eating three dozen eggs every day. And then, oh and these were all just individual meals. And I did get up to 250. And I always say I was strong as an ox, but my health was horrible. Uh, I went for a physical and they wouldn't pass me for my physical. And they said they wanted to put me on blood pressure medication and, and, cholet and statins for my cholesterol level. Dang. And so, yeah, it was wild. And I said, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And I left the football team, lost, left my scholarship and said, well, how did I get to this point? And it was obviously nutrition. And so I switched over from a history major to our dietetics program. And the first day the professor comes in, she's very overweight. She had a Coca-Cola in her hand and I'd already started my own nutrition kind of research at this time. Just, and what I call research at that time was just reading blogs and listening to whoever I could reading, whatever I could probably what the typical American does now. And I just remember on day one, uh, syllabus day, she got into fats is bad. Fats are bad. Cholesterol is bad. And I just remember having read other things at this point that, suggested maybe otherwise. And so I said, this information seems a little outdated uh, that she's feeding us. And so I actually got into exercise science and said, you know what, I, if I'm going to learn about nutrition, I'm probably going to have to teach it to myself. And so I finished out my undergrad and my master's as an exercise physiologist, but my research switched over to nutrition. Uh, and the way I got into the low carbohydrate, really what I call carbohydrate restriction, and we can talk about that. A lot of people are unfamiliar with the different types of carbohydrate restriction. Uh, but the way I got into carbohydrate restriction was I was following the typical American nutrition guidelines. 45 to 65% of my diet was coming from complex carbohydrates, 10 to 35% uh, from protein, and then trying to keep my fat under 30%, You know, kind of making up the rest of whatever was there. Very conscious of that. The majority of my diet, I remember every meal being some type of complex carb. And I did lose weight, but I felt uh, just horrendous in terms of energy, in terms of uh, mental clarity, in terms of just my everyday back and forth. I remember having um, gastric pain, I remember having uh, almost like stomach ulcers. And looking back now, uh, well, 
before I get to that point, so what I did is I switched it. I said, you know what, if it seems like the issue here for me personally are, is, is my carbohydrate consumption. So I drastically for my own self, and again, had, had started becoming biased to this information. Uh, Rob Wolf was a big emphasis in my life. If you guys aren't familiar with Rob Wolf, he's the one who essentially founded the paleo diet and became a big uh, figure in the ketogenic world. And I was reading up on his stuff, talking <laughs> he's talking about cholesterol and fat, and we're probably over-consuming carbohydrates. So I, I did that. I dropped my carbohydrate intake. My protein intake went up. My fat intake went up. And I dropped down to about 205 pounds, felt awesome, performed great. Um, at that time, was eating like that, went to, was a CrossFit regional athlete. Oh, that's uh, and so I did for a period of time, yeah. And so... For me, it was like, that's probably because I had that transformation that uh, like a switch went off for me that if this is what happened for me, this is what's going to happen for everybody. And of course, this was me in my naive days. And so my master's, I did a, a several ketogenic studies and we found some really beneficial things. And I said, you know what, it's I need to take the, I need to take this as far as I can. And so I ended up going and doing my Ph.D. in exercise physiology, but emphasis in nutrition with Dr. Under Dr. McAllister, again, wealth of information, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And if you've ever talked to Matt, he's very much in the same kind of mindset that um, carbohydrate intake is probably too high for most people. Uh, and it's interesting, you guys had Dr. John Eric Smith on, if you think of carbohydrate metabolism, like people in the world, he should be one of the first people that comes to mind. I mean, he is a guru in carbohydrate metabolism. And even when you guys had him on the podcast, and although his talk was about environmental physiology, one of the first things he said was he realized pretty early on uh, when he started following a ketogenic diet is that he didn't need as many carbohydrates as he thought he did. Yeah. And so that's kind of where my research took off during my PhD. And it was during my dissertation that... Re, I read, I mean, if there was anything that dealt with low carbohydrate, carbohydrate restriction, if it was in the title, I read it. And it was interesting. I went into my dissertation ready to prove that this was the way. And I came out of it like, no, it's not. It's like, it, it, it can be a tool, but it's not the only tool. And I realized, uh, kind of quote, unquote, the secret to it. And that I have found and kind of confirmed in all my other carbohydrate restriction studies is that it does a great job that when you drop carbohydrate intake, the other macronutrient that's going to increase is almost always, unless they make a conscious effort to increase fat, it's almost always protein that increases. It does a great job of increasing protein intake. Guess what happens when you increase protein intake? You fall into a caloric deficit because higher protein intake not only does it preserve muscle mass and help with the reduction of fat loss, but it's, it has the highest satiety rating of any of the macronutrients. And so what happens that caloric deficit, that's where that fat loss comes from. And it, it, it was like, I remember when it happened, it was like a light bulb going off in my head. And when I saw that in my own, so I was like, Oh, okay. It's not the reduction in carbohydrates. It's so magical. It's the fact that it causes protein to go up and creates that natural caloric deficit. And uh, so I thought I was going to go and do my postdoc. Uh, and, and just get deeper into this area of research. But during my dissertation, I built up this awesome group of undergrads who helped me out. There's no way I could have completed that study without them. And um, I just remember working with them and thinking, you know what, this, 
I don't want to be known as like this when I die as the greatest researcher ever in nutrition. I want to be known as like a great mentor. And so that's when I kind of shifted from going industry to wanting to go into academia and, and pretty much mentor students who were on the same track as me. These students that, hey, I think things are supposed to be this way and I can come in and challenge your thoughts and really shape and mold or try, try to anyways into them becoming, you know, being able to contribute to our body of, of science. So that's so awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think it's also because like Dr. McAllister had such an influence on you. Right. And, and I know that his, his favorite line and something that's hit on or everyone that like has worked with him has spoke to is, would you rather be like the, the producer of knowledge or the creator of knowledge? And so you can, create more if you are a mentor, right? You're not just kind of consuming stuff. Um, but that's, that's super great. And now, now makes a little bit more sense where I'm like, yeah, okay, <laughs> this way he's got to do what he did. Um, I think it's really interesting that you touched on how, what, what most Americans do is like what you probably did growing up where it's like, you just found random blogs and just found one person that was like, that's what works. Uh, I've seen it work in my life. It works for everyone else. And I guess one of the benefits of grad school and being around people who are like there to kind of rip you a new one in, in a good way, right. To challenge all your thoughts is that you do get smacked around and you're, nobody says just like, yeah, you're right. They're like, well, why? Like, well, this is wrong because of this. And then they kind of just keep pushing you. Um, and that's a skill that you are able to kind of give to your students as well. But I think that's, you know, also why we started this, where it's like we we really want to have people challenge like the things that they they know. So uh, this podcast, sure. I think it's going to go be really well for people who uh, even me, like I love carbs and I'm always like, you got to keep them as high as possible. You know what I mean? Uh, especially if you are any sort of athlete. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited about, about about all this. I think just to build off of that, too, is there, there's something known that you may be familiar with this, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which oh, essentially sure. is, yeah, I mean, the earlier we are, I remember coming out of my master's and I was at the peak of Mount Stupid. And then I get to my doctorate and Matt, again, one of the smartest people, I mean, he, dude's my best friend, but and he was an amazing and still is an amazing mentor. But I remember talking to him on like day one or two, we're talking nutrition and I think I just know everything. And this is someone who has his PhD in nutrition. And just we kind of flip-flop my PhDs in physiology, emphasis in nutrition, his PhDs in nutrition, kind of research emphasis in nutrition and physiology. But I mentioned something about, oh yeah, the um these different uh mono and disaccharides. And I remember mentioning sucralose when I meant sucrose. And I said something about sucralose and he's like, what are you talking about, dude? That's, a, <laughs> that's an artificial, it's like a uh, sugar, artificial sugar. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, sucralose. He said, no, you mean sucrose? And I said, oh my goodness, I, here I am. I was so nervous after that to say anything or speak <laughs> up because I'm like, do I even know what I'm talking about? And it was something so small as that. And he just, all the time, I would say something It'd be me and him and I'd be talking and I would just say something without thinking and he'd smack me down and be like, oh, yeah, no, that's not how it works. And he was very blunt about it. And yeah, definitely over year, uh, every day over years and being around people. That's how I tell I tell my students, too, I'm like, hey, if anybody tells you in physiology and nutrition, if something tells you something's black and white, 
immediately you can discount them because I've, I'm at a point now where I realize people who know what they're talking about, it's almost always, it depends. It's great. We got to put it in context. Anybody that's like, yeah, it's always this way there, even if they are considered an expert, I, I usually tell the students like, Hey, discount them because almost always they're heavily biased. They, they're just looking at that one side of research. Yeah. I think I drive people crazy with the, it depends. I'm like, yeah. I swear I'm not dodging the question. It just depends and we need more context to it. Yeah. I really like that. You said that you don't have any like beliefs because like, I don't plant my flag anywhere. Right. I think that's, that's part of being a scientist is that like, Hey, I think this is right right now, but if you give me evidence, I'm like, all right, cool. I, I change. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and we were joking one time, I think I said, like, I was going to get the mTOR pathway, like, tattooed on me. And then I was like, no way. <laughs> There'd be too many changes yeah. 10, 20 years from now. Like, I'm not about to do that. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that uh, that's obviously, like, a, a really good segue into, like, the, the next topic really being, like, why there's such a disconnect between science and, like, what people think is is right. Because we have us here saying like, you know, uh, this is right, or this is what we believe. Um, but how, how come, or at least why do you think so many people can read a study or uh, do their own quote unquote research and then think that like they have all the answers when we're not even really sure? Like what is, what is your thought process on, on why that happens? Aside from that. that is, uh, yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot there to unpack um, because you can take that as far as, you know, if you start eat, and not, not to make this like a podcast on religion, but you, people like to belong to groups. And when you find things that you personally believe in, people will start to seek out other people that think like them. And one of the things with social media, although there are many good things about it, is when we look at social media, people surround themselves with people that think just like them. People rarely follow people that have conflicting opinions or thoughts as them. And so you surround yourself with enough people that think like you, you all of a sudden believe everything that you think is the truth. I think that you'll see um, when people read studies, they're usually doing one of, there's, there's a couple things that take place that I've seen. When I was in the, the, valley of trying to of being absolutely biased towards the ketogenic diet i would find studies that didn't agree with my thoughts and i would immediately find the limitations to that study and say right. this is a bad study Same. and then i would find studies that had in the title the ketogenic diet saves lives and i'd be like awesome this backs up what i think that bias there that confirmation bias uh, I think you see a lot of that in academia and just science in general, but I think also scientists, including myself, I try and I'm very conscious of this, but I think researchers do a really bad job at being able to communicate to the layperson, uh, especially in scientific writing. We there there is a beauty in an art to writing scientifically, but we make it so instead of saying, for instance, something starts we say it, it was initiated, you know, and it's like, you can only take something so far before you really lose the purpose of that study because you're trying to make it so complex and so, so 
just kind of catchy in the way it reads that we do a bad job, I think, of communicating the science. Uh, I think when you see those two things, I think that's kind of an issue right now. And I think, I think it's being brought, if you, if you look at Twitter, if you look at academics who talk, there's a big call right now that, hey, we're not necessarily, science doesn't need to be dumbed down, but we need to do a better job of communicating it. I think you see people like Lane Norton in the nutrition world who will, he, he'll fight any, any group of people. He, and he's always, he's really was a big influence on me in, in terms of like throwing my bias out the window uh, and seeing people like, Hey, what does the data say? Go and seek out, you know, don't, don't be biased when you read these studies, but really objectively look at what the findings are and then um, start to kind of form your own opinion. And it's hard to have a bias when you do that. When you think back, Hunter, was there like an aha moment where it clicked and you weren't, you know, like the ketogenic diet example, or was it kind of just over time you were like, oh. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it was definitely an overtime thing of, of surrounding myself with people that were just, just brilliant people that may have had biases, but they not only acknowledged them, but they would point mine out. And then the aha moment definitely, definitely came during my dissertation when I was analyzing my data. So for those who aren't aware, my dissertation, I implemented a carbohydrate restricted diet. And just for definition purposes, if we continue to talk about these, uh, there was a big confusion for a long time on what is carbohydrate restriction and what's a ketogenic diet. And everybody, people were just calling everything low carb, high fat. Right. And so Dr. Feynman and, and some other researchers came out and said, okay, let's set the guidelines. So everybody kind of has the same definitions when moving forward. And um, so 45% of the diet, if it's 45% or greater, it's considered a high carbohydrate diet. If it's between 44 and 26% of your total calories coming from carbohydrates, that's moderate carbohydrate restriction. If it's between 25 and 10%, that's carbohydrate restriction. And if it's less than 10% of your total cake house coming from carbohydrate, that's a ketogenic diet. Uh, and so I really got into both moderate and normal and regular carbohydrate restriction because I found that the ketogenic diet for the most part was impractical for people to follow. If you look at the adherence research, adherence is probably the strongest marker of keeping weight off. And so there's not a strong adherence to the ketogenic diet when the research is over. So I found carbohydrate restriction to be more practical for the regular person. And so my dissertation implemented a carbohydrate restricted diet in firefighters, uh, a community well known to be obese and to suffer from cardiovascular disease. I put them on the diet. There had never been to date, there had never been any diet implemented in firefighters in the research. So that was the first one and they lost on average, 10 pounds of body fat, blood pressure went down, inflammation markers went down. It was pretty impressive. And I was looking at the data thinking that it was the reduction in carbohydrates that caused all this to happen. And when I looked at the nutrition data, I was, I was tracking their diet very closely. And when I was looking at their diet, it was very clear that the reduction in carbs increased. They went from 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is the protein recommendations for the a sedentary American, that was on average what those firefighters were consuming and it, they doubled that to 1.6 grams per kilogram, which is the recommendations for active males who are trying to maintain muscle mass or promote hypertrophy. So I saw that, I saw the protein essentially doubled in this group. Carbohydrate intake did go down. Uh, they were consuming quite a bit, but it did go down. 
Uh, and then fat went to about a moderate level, but it was the protein intake that I looked at and then the drop of about 500 on average, each person uh, dropped their caloric intake about 500 kcals. And so across a full month of following that diet, they lost about 10 pounds. And I think that was the aha moment where it's like, okay, what's really happening here is these carbs, when they come down, these guys, all they did was say, hey, I can't, when I go to McDonald's, because they eat out all the time, they're always working it. They live at the fire department. They travel on trucks together. And so how do you, how do these people eat as a group? They go to McDonald's. What are they going to eat if they can't have carbohydrates? What are carbs? If I tell you, if I ask somebody, what are French fries? What comes to mind? Most people would say carbohydrates, although there's just as many calories in French fries coming from lipids or fats. Right, but people don't think of French fries as a fat. They think of it as a carb. So you go to McDonald's, these guys can't have carbohydrates, okay. Uh, well, that eliminates soda, that eliminates the bread, that eliminates the French fries, that eliminates the dessert. What's left? It's the patty and whatever vegetables were on that patty. Chicken nuggets. And so, dude. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, they're chicken breaded, nuggets. so I don't know. Yeah, they are breaded, yeah. Chicken you have to pick off the area. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the script <laughs> Yeah, that'd be awesome. So yeah, I saw that, you know, and it worked really well for him. But that aha moment definitely happened then when I said, you know what, this, these benefits for and I went back and looked at older studies of mine looked at the insane thing, protein went up, uh, calories dropped, and it was definitely and if you read those manuscripts, if anyone does, I'm acknowledged now every time, hey, the reason this happened, the benefits of this is only because protein went up and calories dropped. Carbohydrate restriction allowed that to occur, but it wasn't the, re it, in my opinion, it's not the reason that these improvements to inflammation and um, these different, I guess, cardiometabolic markers, it, it, it's not the reason for those improvements. Yeah. Were those guys, uh, did they like that style of eating and did they choose to continue or do you know? Yes. Yeah, great question. Some of them did. Uh, and still follow it to this day. In fact, the chief, the big dog who followed it, came off his blood pressure medications and his statins from that diet, uh, which which was awesome. It very cool yeah. that he uh, that was able to occur. But I would say there were 15 that finished the diet, and about half of them hated it. Absolutely hated it. Because, and I get it. I mean, it's like. You're, you live with a group of guys at the station. They all have to eat the same thing. And so they were used to eating sandwiches and spaghetti, uh, things. And now you can't have that anymore. And it's like, okay, all we can eat is meat and like peanut butter. <laughs> and I mean, they were not happy with it. When you go out to eat, having to, I remember one of them telling me like, yeah, we all went and got pizza and we just scraped off the top and left the crust. And I'm oh, like, I get no. it. That, yeah, that's horrible. Just is what that is, man. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. So about half of them, uh, as soon as the study was over, about half of them immediately went back to their old, you know, their normal dietary habits and the other half stayed on. And, you know, I look at that and I think, it, it tells me, hey, it was good for half of them, but the other 50%, undoubtedly, what's going to happen is they're going to go back to their normal diet and they're going to gain additional weight because when you follow a dietary uh, constrict, like caloric constricted, any anything, you start looking at energy expenditure, basal metabolic rate, it drops, 
all of a sudden now your adipose tissue shrink, those adipose cells shrink, but then you go back to eating how you were, possibly a little more. That's just a, like a neuroregulatory mechanism that occurs. Your body's like, oh, food again? Hey, we better eat more of this because we don't know if we're about to starve again. And now you go through hyperplasia with your adipocytes, so you create more body fat and your basal metabolic rate, your metabolism still super low. And so it doesn't have a chance to catch up. So, you know, I look at that, I'm like, it was good for the diet, like for the study, it got me defended, which is awesome. So <laughs> I'm no longer a student, but for those 50, for half those firefighters, you know, it, it was probably a detriment to them in the long run. So yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, adherence is such a tough thing. That's where you start getting into like the psychology of it, which is why I have such a respect for dietitians because I don't really have empathy for people. I just, I'm like, do it. You see, just I, do it. See, it's not just me. It's, it's, it's two different minds, right? Where it's like RDNs are, are kind of like counselors. Like, Eric, you we pretty are. much are. Oh, like, yeah. You take the whole human, but I'm like, you just got to do it. Like, this is just the science part of just like, hey, if you want this and this, you have to do that. That's it. Yeah. Last week, one of my clients, you know, we were talking and she's like, you do a lot of psychology, don't you? And I was like, I probably should have gotten a double major, honestly, because yeah. it is very mental. That's so funny. Uh, yeah. And so that was a really great question, Brooke, to Hunter about like kind of what, whether like, what was your aha moment? Uh, but now I kind of want to ask that to you and Nicole, uh, like, what were your aha moments for nutrition or your practice or you know, things that I guess what got you to think about the things that you think now and how that's like maybe changed your, like how you frame, how you think, if that was clear at all. I don't know. I think it happened over time, but I think originally when I got into the profession, I was just so confused because I had been told these really weird things from coaches growing up as a competitive swimmer and I had really unhealthy habits with food and I felt awful like I was starting to have health issues because my activity had slowed down but I didn't know how to eat and I was still eating garbage kind of almost similar to Hunter's story I was eating like Popeye's fried chicken as like post-workout and like just all these things that were so ridiculous and not good for me and so I felt terrible and I started to actually get migraines and have health issues. And I was like, I don't, I need to figure this out because I felt like there were no clear answers. It just, you know, everyone for whatever reason, when I think it comes to food, it's sometimes like cult-like. It's like, oh, it used to be Adkins back in the day. It was like Adkins and this and that. And I was like, I, I just don't think this is how it is. And so that's kind of like how I got into it. And I think it happened more over time. It wasn't like an aha moment. But uh, one of the things, you know, and Hunter mentioned that I love about both of our fields, I guess any scientific field, is it's changing. And I really liked that. Like, there isn't one answer. And even if I gave you an answer today, it might not be the right answer in five years. And I think that's super cool. And as I, like, dove more into my studies, learning about really, I feel like so much of what I did is learn about research and how it's done and why it's important and like how to decipher, you know, like you mentioned the limitations and really dissecting all that. And that's kind of, it all spiraled from there, I guess. <laughs> spiraled like it's a bad thing. Uh, for me, I think it was like, 
when we learned, or I guess when I learned it was my, the first year during my PhD was like when I had like my first, like, I think big aha moment, but you know, doing this for about a decade, it's been a huge growing thing for me. But when it comes to the science and not believing, or at least not sticking to things, even though you've been taught it for a long time, it was with how important we think testosterone is or hormones were for hypertrophy because growing up it was like you know you had to have the pump and you had to do your big lift so you had an increase in testosterone and you know that was going to to force everything to get bigger and stronger and you know all these different things uh but then when you look at the research it's like oh well testosterone is really only going up most likely because you are metabolizing fat like you're you're metabolizing food so that you can continue to do work and it was such a stark contrast from what i've been taught my entire education and you know i'm not saying like dr smith or, or matt like taught me that but i guess it was something that was like never explicitly stated and so i never like learned it but when i learned it was like majority mechanical tension being turned into like electro signals that that cause downstream stimulation of pathways and that's how you get it i was like i mean my mind was blown and that's when i was like i don't know shit about anything <laughs> like this is really really bad for me um but that was like my i think my aha moment um but what about you nicole um yeah i think for me it kind of took a turn when we got into our master's program so being just completely immersed into the world of nutrition for six years that's just all we knew and all we were learning so when i started my master's with health promotion that kind of opened this whole new door to all these other aspects of health and what make a person healthy and it wasn't just nutrition and physical activity like we've talked about so many times before there's so many other factors that kind of go into this um, socioeconomic status, your environment, your mental and your emotional health, your social and your community support. And I think that's where, for me, I was just kind of like, well, it's kind of unfair to just base someone's health off of what they weigh or what they're eating or what their movement patterns are like. And I really wanted to incorporate both sides of health promotion and nutrition into my practice as a dietitian because I think that that is just where we're going to kind of see that change in the healthcare system as a whole and that's where I believe like I'm going to see the most impact in other people's lives when it comes to creating those sustainable and achievable health behaviors that are individualized to that person. And so it really just got me thinking in a whole other way of it's not just calories, it's not just macros. Um, this is a very complex um, thing that we are trying to figure out. And like we've each said, you know, it does keep changing and we have to be willing to learn and grow and evolve in that. Yeah, we're, we're not all just like mice, right? <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I, I think that we, we've kind of already touched on this, Hunter, because you mentioned that even like the cut from carbs wasn't the reason 
that weight loss was happening, right? It wasn't specifically because you cut out carbs, but it was that, you know, there was a, a, a decrease in caloric intake, right? As, as the main thing. Um, so I think a lot of people, like we've talked about, you like to belong to a group. Some people are, you know, carbs are bad, carbs are good. And we know it like lies somewhere within the middle, but like, we know that weight loss, when calories are equated, are going to, uh, it, like the whatever you are manipulating, whether it's carbohydrates or fats or proteins, doesn't really matter as much as overall uh, calories. But when it comes to things like inflammation, um, other processes as far as hormones go, I think that's more of where the nuance of your research comes in. So can you talk about the effects that decreasing carbohydrates might have on inflammatory processes and those cardiometabolic uh, factors or just metabolic factors that um, you talked about earlier? Like, why are those things important? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. And there's obviously many rabbit holes to go down there. Um, I think just to clarify something you had mentioned is when we look at calories, as long as proteins equated for it really doesn't seem like there's much of a, sure. it's more of a personal preference in terms of if you modify fats or carbohydrates, but protein is definitely kind of the key there. When you look at the nutrition research, when you look at carbohydrate restriction specifically and inflammation, which again, published a handful of papers looking at inflammation and uh, these different markers of cardiovascular disease, uh, C-reactive protein, looking at some of the interleukins, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and get into advanced oxidative protein products. And uh, you can just go down the list of them. Um, when you look at the earlier research on carbohydrate restriction, specifically with a ketogenic diet, just to understand the mechanism before we go into the inflammation, for every, on a grand scale, so there was a study done, and I don't remember the researcher, but hundreds of individuals, and showed that for every, starting at 50%, uh, if your diet is made up of 50% of carbohydrates, for every 10% reduction, so going simply from 50 to 40%, for every 10% reduction in carbohydrate intake, there are over 400 transcriptional factors related back to fatty acids, uh, fatty acid oxidation and inflammation that are upregulated. And so I found that really interesting. And so you start to look at that and you start to look at what happens, what are the uh, markers that individuals with heart disease have? Well, they tend to have high LDL, they tend to have low HDL, they also tend to have high insulin levels, they also tend to have high cortisol levels and high uh, aldosterone levels. And when you understand what those hormones do and what those lipids, these different cholesterol markers do, uh, just from a hormonal level, when you have hyperinsulinemia and then you have hypercortisolemia, uh, the body becomes very there's a term that I really like that's starting to catch on uh, called metabolically inflexible. So one of the best markers of health now, Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Nelson, a good buddy of mine has really popularized this term, I think, uh, metabolic flexibility. It essentially says that we know that it rests in low intensities. The body should be able to freely access fatty acids as a fuel source. That should be the predominant fuel. 
And as that intensity of exercise, whatever the stimulus is that you're giving, as we move from low to high, that we should be able to access, go from switching over from fatty acids to carbohydrate uh, stores. When we look at people that are metabolically inflexible, people with high, very hyper insulin levels, hyper cortisol levels, hyper aldosterone, we end up seeing they, they cannot readily access their own body fat stores. And this is primarily due to a mitochondria that's dysfunctional. When you reduce carbohydrates, at least, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen when you reduce fats. I'm just, from my research and carbohydrate res, uh, restriction, when you restrict carbohydrates, one of the first things that happens is their blood pressure and their uh, their total body mass goes down within a couple days. Now, people will say, well, that's superficial because of water loss. Exactly, because we know that for every gram of glucose and glycogen, there's three or four molecules of water attached to it. But when you remove those carbohydrates, they excrete that excess water Body mass comes down immediately. What I have found in my research is that blood pressure comes down as well. Now, although superficial, we've already talked one of the main things that we're interested in uh, from a diet perspective is adherence. Guess what is, even though I know in my brain that this is a superficial drop in weight, when a person sees in two or three days they've lost three or four pounds and their blood pressures also come down, so that's almost a signal that, hey, I need to stick to this diet because this is magical. And so now we got them sticking to it. Okay, well, it does take time for inflammation markers to improve. Over time, as they reduce those carbohydrates and calories drop, and if protein in, uh, goes up, one of the things that we see, anybody that knows basic physiology, and I'm not saying insulin's the devil that's been made out to be. I've published a paper on insulin. I know insulin very well. I'm not claiming to be an expert on it. But it is well known that if you have hyperinsulinemia, that you tend to have also, uh, you tend to be either pre-diabetic or diabetic. You have high glucose levels. You have essentially shut off the ability to take glucose and store it where it needs to go. Uh, in addition to that, you have excess cortisol that gets secreted, the stress hormone, as everybody calls it. So cortisol is being released because cortisol is a glucocorticoid. It's trying to improve or increase glucose in the bloodstream because your muscles, when you look at these people who are pre-diabetic or diabetic or overweight, because they're not able to store this glucose in the muscle, the muscle essentially looks like it's starving. That's what it thinks. It's like, I'm starving of fuel. So that feeds back up to the brain, brain releases cortisol, cortisol comes in and says, hey, we must just not have enough glucose in the bloodstream. So cortisol starts to break glycogen down, starts to break protein, muscle down. We start going through gluconeogenesis, creating more glucose, still cannot get in the muscle. These GLUT4s, these, these vehicles that allow glute, uh, glucose to come in, they can't be accessed. Another thing that's happening is aldosterone is very high. Aldosterone essentially regulates sodium and, and essentially kind of like water balance. And so because you have so much glucose in the bloodstream, you've also got, as we mentioned, all this water being stored in the bloodstream as well. Blood pressure is high. Aldosterone is high. So you, you reduce these carbohydrates. They stick to this diet over a period of time because superficially they think, hey, it's working. And if they stick to it long enough because they believe in it, guess what we see? We see insulin levels come down. And because we see them start becoming more insulin sensitive, is that due to carbohydrate restriction or the caloric restriction or the caloric deficit that's occurred? 
you can't really flesh out which one is due to, but it happens. Insulin levels come down, insulin levels come down, cortisol comes down, because cortisol comes down, aldosterone comes down, and guess what? When we see these start to happen, C-reactive protein, probably the strongest marker of systemic inflammation, it comes down. We see improvements to lipid levels, HDL starts to go back up. HDL tends to be suppressed when you have high insulin and cortisol levels. So when those come down, we see a, like a, a inverse relationship with HDL, LDL levels come down. And so it's just this really impressive kind of metabolic sequence and pathways that start to take place. And it's probably when you look at the American Society of Nutrition, they have adopted uh, carbohydrate restriction as one of the first approaches to individuals with diabetes. And it makes sense. And I'm not saying it's the only approach, but it makes sense from that standpoint uh, on a number of levels for combating obesity, diabetes, inflammation, and trying to improve all those markers that we've discussed. In so at which level of carbohydrate restriction do you start to see this kind of like cascade effect of reducing those markers occur? Cause I know you talked about the different levels. Good question. Yeah, yeah that is a great question. So in just in my research, uh, we tend to start to really see, I would say pronounced effects around when, so a step back, most people I've worked with, most people I've worked with, even when I wasn't doing research and working with uh, nutrition outside and in industry, most people are consuming between about what the American Dietary Guidelines say, 45 to 65% seems to be on average what most people consume. When people get that carbohydrate, to answer your question, when people get their carbohydrate intake down to about 20 to 25%, that really seems to be where we see that drastic turnaround and that could just just simply be because that might be where a significant drop in calories takes place. I'm not again, I'm not saying it's because it's just because you're dropping carbohydrates, but it is about that 20, 25%. Now, what people also, when they hear that, they think, oh, just like you do with supplements or anything else, if 20, 25% is good, I need to go to 10% or 5% yeah. or get in that keto range. And although I have done research and found we've shown that the ketogenic diet can drastically improve markers of inflammation, markers of tumors and cancer cells, uh, drastically in one study I've done in healthy males uh, that routinely exercise, the ketogenic diet reduced these receptors that are responsible for cancer. But does that mean that was it, in my opinion, was those changes were they significantly better than what you would have gotten if you had just followed the diet at 20 or 25%? No, I don't think so. I don't think it was meaningful enough to warrant telling someone to follow the ketogenic diet. Now, does the ketogenic diet have a place? Absolutely. You start getting into um, Parkinson's disease, you start getting into epilepsy. There are some, when medications aren't working, there are definitely some cancers, you get into the Warburg effect where these cancer cells have essentially shut down the mitochondria. They're feeding straight off glucose. Yeah, the ketogenic diet definitely has a place in those. But I think where people are starting to say, you know, it's the fix for all, absolutely not. I mean, you can drop your carbohydrate intake to 25% and see quite an improvement for sure. People that you've worked with or in your research drop down to that 25% do have you seen it be something that they can sustain for long periods of time or do people normally like 
get over it and they're just like, I can't do this anymore? Or do you kind of see a difference in um, if it's working just in like the sustainable aspect for some and not for others? Yeah, so we, um, 20 to 25%, the reason I kind of undertook that is, hey, this is kind of the area I like for research seems to be really the cutoff limit of how low you can go before people are, hey, I'm not going to do this. That's what, again, the ketogenic diet, what I have found is just too severe. 20, 25%, ironically, is not that low. You can still, the average person, 20, 25% still consuming around 150, 100, 150 grams of carbohydrates a day, uh, depending body mass. So, uh, you know, and that that's still quite a bit for a person who, from what I've found, people get on that diet and restrict carbohydrates to that. You bump protein up. They're not hungry. Even though they're in a caloric deficit, they're, they don't seem to really be hungry. And they're like, man, I'm still getting quite a bit of carbohydrates. Oh, you're telling me that I don't have to get less than 50 grams a day and they all have to be fibrous broccoli and carrots. Oh, you're mm -hmm. telling me I can have rice and a potato and a banana and still get a lot of these benefits. Uh, what's Ro got to say? No, I was going to say and rice bananas. No, no, no. I was going to say and rice krispies. Yeah, yeah. And he loves and rice krispies. <laughs> hey, if you can fit, and that's kind of where that approach of like, if it fits your macros, that's something else I've done. You know, I kind of mix and match these. It's like, hey, your body, and my wife hates it when I say this, but if you eat an apple and a caramel apple, assuming carbohydrate dosage is the same 50 grams and 50 grams at the end of the day it all breaks down to glucose your body you know the nutrient profile is what we're looking at the micronutrient differences there but um yeah i mean if that's kind of where it where it fits your macros comes in is like your body doesn't know if it's a banana or a rice crispy treat like if it's 20 grams of carbs it's going to be 20 grams of carbs it's just the <laughs> it's just the nutrient differences there. And so if you're following a carbohydrate restricted diet and you want that rice crispy treat and you have the allotted carbohydrates for it, you can do that. Uh, this is where when you understand nutrition and I know you guys do, but when you're talking to the general public, they think, Oh, I can't have that. And it's like, well, no, you absolutely can just mm -hmm. be aware. You, it may not be as filling. There's not going to be the nutritional, um, content there that you might get from say an apple and orange or something along those lines. But uh, yeah, I have found to answer your question, uh, I found that to be kind of the cutoff limit. However, it still can be too low for quite a bit of people. I'd say about 50% of the population I've worked with, it's still too low. Um, so that's where it comes. It's not for every car reducing yeah. carbohydrates. is not for everybody. So, yeah, I think that one thing you have to understand is, especially in your population that you work with, it's active firefighters who have to be able to do a job, right? Like yeah. th these are not people who are you know, sitting nine to five desk jobs and, you know, they, they eat and then they're like, well, I'm bored. I'm going to eat more. Like sometimes they're just, they have to be awake. They have to be ready to go. And they are very active. Um, and, and I think that's also something that's, that's important to, to understand or at least go, go over is that, you know, you talked about all these reductions in inflammatory processes and uh, explaining the, the muscle is like a starved a starved muscle, right? When it doesn't have glucose and that's why it's going to upregulate all this stuff. So is that independent with weight loss or, you know, as if someone is obese, right? And they take up resistance training and they take up, um, uh, cardio training, uh, or endurance training, like even if they are still obese, 
right? Can you talk about why they're still going to see, um, I guess, gains in, in health as far as insulin and processing carbs go simply because, you know, that contraction of muscle is going to really help to navigate carbohydrates through the body. It's going to help to really kind of set everything back in place. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, they, they call it starvation in the face of plenty, and w- which is appropriately titled when you think about it, because there's plenty of fuel there. It's just it looks to the muscle like a starvation mode, uh, simply due to the stimulus that's being provided to the body at that time, which is you're essentially telling it, hey, it's okay to be overweight and obese and this, these hormones to be out of whack and not optimal. It's okay. Um, but you know, if we look at, look at it from an exercise perspective, we'll do, if we just focus on, uh, glucose uptake transporters, we'll just look at GLUT4 for a second. There are several types. GLUT4 essentially within the muscle, it acts as a vesicle to go up to the surface of a muscle membrane and to pull glucose into the muscle. And then it phosphorylates that glucose and allows the muscle to then either store it as glycogen or to send it on down glycolysis and we can use it as a fuel uh, to generate ATP. As we mentioned, when you're in that overweight diabetic type state, that becomes difficult to do. Well, how is it then that exercise can improve uh, this metabolic profile independent of nutrition? You have to be aware that there are different types of GLUT4s. There, not only are there, there's GLUT1, 2, 3, GLUT5, GLUT, all the GLUT7, and sodium glucose uptake transporters. When you look at just GLUT4, there are different, what we call isoforms. So just like you have a left and a right hand, there are different types of GLUT4s that stay within the muscle. One of them is insulin dependent. Another one is non-insulin dependent. And the non-insulin dependent is the one that then becomes active during exercise or if you go into any kind of caloric deficit, it becomes dependent. There's a uh, protein, it's an enzyme known as adenosine monophosphate kinase, AMPK. It's like the cellular sensor. Every cell has it. And I always tell my students, it's like a, almost like a fire alarm that goes off. And when you fall into this caloric deficit, AMPK is activated. It's upregulated. And what it does, it goes and finds the non-insulin dependent GLUT4 says, hey, wake up, we need you to go to the outside of this muscle membrane and to start bringing glucose in. And even though the other GLUT4 that is insulin dependent is not active, we can still bring glucose levels down simply by falling into that caloric deficit. It's called AMPK because when ATP is broken down, we have ADP and we can break ADP down if we need to, to AMP, or you get to AMP, adenosine monophosphate, Hey, you've got your, your, that's a signal to the body. Hey, we're low on fuel. And this is a signal to say, we need to figure this out because we can't really go anywhere from here. Once we get past AMP, you can go to something known as IMP, but you're, you're at AMP. It's like, Hey, we're about out of fuel. So we need to get something in here to bring a, to get back up to ATP. So AMP activates AMPK, AMPK activates that non-insulin dependent GLUT4. It goes up there, starts bringing glucose into the cell. And guess what? Just something as simple as exercise. But it's also to say, you know, sleep. People talk about fasting. Here's my thing when I get really going on nutrition is what is the mechanism that improves health? 
what's the mechanism for intermittent fasting? What's the mechanism for a high fat, low carbohydrate diet? What's the mechanism for a, a low fat diet? What's the mechanism for exercise? It's a big one is AMPK. When you fall in that caloric deficit, that's why sleep's so important. Sleep is a natural fast. When you do eight hours of sleep, you fall into a caloric deficit. One of the reasons sleep is so beneficial, not just from we could get into the neural side and the recovery side, but simply looking at the cell like we are right now, falling into a caloric deficit while you sleep activates AMPK and does all these beneficial processes that we're talking about right now. And so, yeah, regardless if it's from nutrition, sleep, if you're just, you know, eating appropriate, if you're exercising, all these things activate, they upregulate AMPK. Then, and then again, this host of beneficial uh, processes take place that allow us to start to optimize that metabolic profile. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, really, really great explanation. Uh, anyone listening, drop out of your, you know, exercise physiology program and just take that and <laughs> you're, you're pretty yeah, you're done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll put your Venmo in the, <laughs> in the description so they can send Thank their you. tuition to you. Uh, <laughs> but another thing, you know, talking about um, specific to activity, right. Is, is you talked about the non-insulin and the insulin dependent pathways and for me, and I, I'm not sure if I brought it up on this podcast, but I, I you know, uh, talked to Nicole and Brooke about it, how like it's it's not even that. So so as you exercise, right, you improve your ability to to uh, move move glute four, so essentially move glucose throughout the body the body. But it's not if you go like deeper, it's not that your insulin receptors become more sensitive, but for exercise, it's the downstream pathway of that, like TBC1D4, I think it is, whereas that's upregulated. So even though uh, it's not as efficient at rest, it still has to pull through that funnel. And that's going to increase the efficiency of that. Uh, the problem is that, like, you know, that that pathway is upregulated as you exercise. So you can't just like do it once and then it's good. And that's why people who do have diabetes or hyperinsulinemia and hyper... Uh, uh, glucose, they have to keep exercising if their insulin receptors are already messed up because that's pretty much the the only way maybe that um, they're going to get those glute four transporters to to activate and to move. Um, so I thought that that was like really great and like I, I know zero about insulin, especially when you compare it to what you just talked about. But there's like people who study even deeper than what we just talked about, like for the one little subunit of that pathway and, and what it does. So, um, but I think what you said really spoke to what most people need to know is that, hey, if you are doing no exercise, right, but you are decreasing your caloric intake, that's going to have benefits. If you are maybe not having as dramatic of a decrease in calories, but you are exercising, that's going to have its own kind of set pathway that is going to do work and then is also going to increase the the pathways that are at work when you're not doing any sort of work. So, you know, obviously our listeners don't have to get lost in in the nuance and think about these pathways, but for the most part is you have to pick one, one or the other. It's it's probably best if you pick both, but if you are really set on, hey, I'm going to do one thing right now. I'm just going to focus on eating a little less carbs. That's great because of all the stuff we talked about. Or I'm not at a place where I can really change my dietary habits 
either you know because it's a communal thing or i have to feed my family and like i have a family of six so like we all have to eat or i just really enjoy fries uh and you know stuff like that then you have to exercise more um, or at least start exercising to see any sort of a benefit but i think that you explained that super super well Oh, I appreciate I that. One of the, you know, just kind of piggybacking off something you had mentioned, you said that there are researchers out there that study a subunit of, of insulin in that pathway. It's going back to that Dunning-Kruger effect. There was someone at Mississippi State, uh, I took micronutrients, uh, I think it's called micronutrition or micronutrients. And the professor said on day one, he had spent 34 years studying selenium, just selenium, <laughs> 34 years, longer than I've been alive. And I remember thinking, I'm afraid to talk about stuff around people because I don't know. I have he, stu he studied selenium for 34 years. You've got all this knowledge out there, and he has spent his whole life, his whole career studying this one thing. And you hear people, and they write blogs on stuff, and you're just like, no. I've known yeah. people studied 34 years on selenium. That's insane. Um, but, yeah, it is um, – you know, I tell to your listeners and to my students and anyone else, I always say, you know, it's good to know how things work and but but it's really good to know also why things work. And sometimes you do have to get a little bit into the weeds for that. But it, it is good to know, like to run around and say, yeah, good, you know, nutrition's good for your health. Yeah, but why? Why is it? And that's where you start to get down in some of the things we're talking about. Yeah, you don't have to know every you know, every single step of every pathway and, and the, the chemical structure of everything. But it is good to know, like, just like what we talked about, like there are some that are dependent on insulin, some that are non-insulin dependent. And I think that's beneficial to know because I think it creates a buy-in for someone when they start taking an interest in their health in that, in that way is start really understanding why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, not just that, how is this working, but why is this working? And so... I usually encourage people, yeah, you, it is good to get into the weeds sometimes. Not always, you know, John Eric Smith would tell you not to be such a scientist. That was his favorite thing to tell me. He's like, you get too in the weeds and you lose the forest and that quote. And he was definitely right on that. But there is a, there is a, a balance there, I guess you should say, for sure. His thing for me was the, was the directions, right? If, if I tell you, how do I get to Disneyland from here, right? It's like, oh, yeah, uh, Google it. Right. And is it step by step by step by step? Or is it like, yeah, you know, you drive to Florida <laughs> or is it like, you know, things like that. Um, I know I know you have to get going here uh, soon, but but I, I do kind of want to talk about it's something that we talk about a lot. But there are differences between especially decreasing calories for the sake of uh, inflammation and then decreasing calories for performance. Right. Uh you know, what are your thoughts on that? And, and I, I, I would assume most of us kind of agree on what's going to come out of your mouth. But uh, I'm interested mm -hmm. to, to hear about when you might think about or, or at what point this becomes relevant information, right? Like if you are a, you know, really aerobic person or an anaerobic athlete, is this something that you should really be thinking about? Does it matter? Um, and, and, you know, is it enough to switch what it is that you've been doing or what you will be doing in the future yeah um great question there's so much there i will say that for you said does it matter yeah. does it matter 
absolutely. But it, it so much depends on the context and what we're talking about. When my research looking at a, the metabolic profile of an athlete, first off, we need to all, I, I think, agree that inflammation has its place. I mean, right. there's quite a plethora of antioxidant research that looks at if you supplement someone with vitamin C in a high enough dose, very strong antioxidant, following resistance or aerobic exercise, you block adaptations to exercise because that antioxidant almost eliminates the inflammatory pathway. So inflammation, depending, are we talking acute or chronic? That's the first thing you have to look at. Are we talking acute inflammation? If so, it's probably fine. There's a reason why inflammate, we have these inflammatory processes and inflammation from exercise is totally cool because it's just like a little snack for the mitochondria. It just, it's just like kind of a little stressor that the mitochondria says, well, dang, I better get a little stronger, improve my antioxidant status so that I can fight the stressor should I you know, encounter it again. Uh, it's chronic low-grade inflammation that becomes a problem, and that's where we start to see heart disease progress. Do we see that in athletes? Not really. I mean, active individuals, again, it's, I'm not trying to blanket it, but for the most part, that's not very common when someone is fairly active. Now, if you have someone who, and again, you, we go down so many holes, when would I worry about inflammation? In a, I would worry about inflammation in a, in, in a sedentary individual. Uh, but even then, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be my first go-to without blood work. I, I almost never make recommendations in terms of nutrition until I have some blood work to look at. And C-reactive protein, basic lipids, and people say, oh, LDL is not a good marker. Uh, there's, it actually is. I mean, it's not the best marker we know without LDL particle size now. You know, you usually just get count. Uh, but it's still a good marker. HDL, LDL, triglyceride levels, C-reactive protein, I usually encourage everyone to get, but I need to know what your hormone levels look like. You know, I want to know what your insulin levels look like. These things can tell me if inflammation is an issue, uh, but if you don't have access to that, well, then is that something that we should even care about? Again, it really just depends. It depends on what the rest of your life, are you, are you stressed from work? Do you have, you know, what's your your home life look like? What does your financial status look like? There's just so many factors that come into it. I would say if you're an active individual and active, if you're lifting weights two or three, I'm just trying to think of the average person. If you're lifting weights two or three times a week, running, trying to get your heart rate up, you know, steadily two or three times a week, uh, you're probably okay from an inflammation issue. Your mitochondria are probably robust enough to fight off any uh, serious chronic low-grade inflammation that might be taking place. But if you're solely, if you're sedentary, then even if you do follow fairly, well, uh, you know, good dietary habits, it can still be an issue. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you have other questions and I can maybe jump off those, it's just there's so much there. It's like it's kind of hard to, I guess, give a real straight answer on that. It's just it, it's, it's tough to answer that question, I guess, straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you you were mentioning like if you are a fairly active person, the chances of you being uh, on paper like unhealthy are fairly low. But then, but then you mentioned that you know you got up to two hundred fifty pounds and you were playing football, and so I you know that's not everyone, right? That's not me that just lifting and trying to be like a recreational athlete or weekend warrior or whatever. Um, 
but it's something to to think about if if that's you but majority of people who are active i don't think are sure part of that. Um, and i would say too like again that's kind of a unique situation in that i literally was force feeding myself i remember not being hungry not wanting to eat and it would be 10 o'clock at night and thinking because my coaches told me I need to eat a whole pizza before I go to bed. And so I would force feed. And so, you know, your body is, again, I tell people your body, all it does is respond to the stimuli you give it. That's all it's doing. Your body's like a big cell tower and the stimuli are like text messages. And so what are those text messages you're constantly, because all it's going to do is respond to it. And so if you're constantly giving it crappy food, and you've met your calories and you're greatly exceeding them and you're force feeding yourself, the body's going to respond with an inflammation, pro you know, all the pathways are going to get upregulated. But how many people are for, you know, people overeat. Yeah. But do they force feed themselves? That, that's not as common as people just simply overeating. Right. So uh, you, you don't really see people force feeding themselves too often in the athletic setting. So, yeah, I think I was definitely, I'm not the norm. I should say that, you know, people often in research, they'll take a outlier and make that out to be, well, what about so-and-so? Like that's the norm. And that is, that, that is not the case. I was definitely uh, a unique situation. Yeah. Your cell tower was receiving too many you up texts, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you have, as soon as you said that, I was like, hold the joke, hold the joke. You'll have your time. It'll be good. <laughs> um no, but everybody's that, happy that you told that joke yeah yeah my list the listeners are just like oh so good five stars now <laughs> um <laughs> yeah do, do you two have any questions that uh i mean as you mentioned like there is a that was like a really big question um before he goes uh you know questions regarding that or anything that we had talked about really I don't think I have any questions. It was definitely very interesting to see such a or hear such a deep dive into the world of nutrition because, you know, like you all mentioned before, me and Brooke kind of deal with like that more like psychological and just like the day to day stuff. So hearing all the science kind of kind of takes us back, maybe a little PTSD, but, you know, it's cool. <laughs> Biochem was rough. Yeah, <laughs> but. <laughs> I feel that. No, I I really enjoyed that. I would love if you could come back on again. Yes, I please. I want to hear more too. Um, we didn't get to talk about it this time, but about like shift workers and night workers mm. and how when you throw that into the mix, what happens. So, um, thank you so much for your time. And that was Man, really I appreciate, interesting. I appreciate you guys. Yeah, you definitely. Um, some of my recent publications have looked at like circadian rhythm and you start getting into circadian rhythm and nutrition and uh, metabolism and looking at how the brain syncs up with the cells at night. And it's all based off light, UVA, UVB rays back to the eyes. And uh, I would love to come back on. And I really appreciate you guys having me. I'm sorry I got a jet, um, but there's, yeah. there's still so much to talk about. And I feel like there's a lot of rabbit holes we can go down. So definitely you guys just let me know when I'm happy to jump on. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And for anyone who does do research, uh, also Hunter's not normal. He's a freaking <laughs> madman. So he just pumps stuff out. So if you're like, oh, this guy's got like 40 publications, <laughs> it's because he is psychotic. Um, but seriously, as, as Nicole and, and Brooke have said, like, thanks so much for coming on. I know that like 
we've texted plenty of times. Uh, you're a good friend of mine, but like, it does mean a lot that that you came in and showed people what real smart people are and like people that really <laughs> understand physiology is because. Uh, they hear me and they're like, oh, I mean, I guess so. And then they hear and they're gonna be like, Oh yeah, Ro is not smart at all. So that's what a that's what a real PhD, <laughs> a real PhD something looks like. Um, I know you're mm-hmm. off the socials, uh, but is there anywhere that people can get a hold of you or like keep up with your research and you know ask any questions that they might have? Yeah, sure. So I do have a Twitter. I don't have an Instagram or Facebook, but my Twitter I don't really communicate on there. I just have it to find research so it's it's like straight up research uh related you can jump on there because if i publish i'll post something but uh research gate is probably the main way other academics communicate with me uh research gate you can just look up hunter waldman or if you simply google my name uh you'll find my profile at the university of north alabama and anybody listening you're welcome to shoot me an email uh promise I'll get back to it. I can't promise it'll be that same day, but I'll definitely, I'll definitely get back to you. What's that? What's that Twitter handle? I I think, well, I think you need to tell me what a Twitter handle is. (laughs) What's your name on Twitter? (laughs) You literally just Google or Twitter tweet or whatever the search thing is. Look up Hunter Walden and you should be fine. You should find me. There's no way someone else has my name on there. (laughs) Genius in the lab and outside. He's like, I don't know. uh, Get on the Google. (laughs) Look me up on the book of faith. All right. I'll look for it and I'll put it in the the description and the show notes and stuff. Um, Thank you all for listening so much. Hunter, seriously, thanks for coming on. Uh, I can't wait to come back again because like Brooke said, there's so many things we had written out that like, it's so interesting and, and I think worth talking about. Um, and then I love like all the input that was coming in, but uh, thank you for listening. Please continue to share uh, and subscribe and rate us and all that good stuff. Uh, please send in questions, especially considering uh, all the stuff that we talked about. Um, any questions you might have as far as our question of the week or to put in the bank for our Q and a episodes. Um, but until next time, uh, we will catch you later. So as Brooke likes to say, cue the music. Peace out. (laughs) Bye.